0: This is ScienceWise, questions at the Confluence of Science and Ethics, a podcast produced in conjunction with the Nobel Conference at Gustavus Adolphus College in St. Peter, Minnesota. I'm your host, Lisa Hiltke, director of the conference and philosophy professor at Gustavus. This fall's conference, Big Data Revolution, uh, is taking place on October 5th and 6th. You can find details about the conference at the Gustavus website www.gustavis.edu slash Nobel Conference, no caps and no space. Do you have a Fitbit? Has it taken over every aspect of your life such that you find yourself walking around the block three times before you go to bed at night to make sure you got your steps in? Or has it been relegated to the junk drawer in the kitchen along with all the other good idea gadgets that just became annoying? Statistician Talithia Williams suggests there might be a third option lying between those two. Her extremely popular TED talk, Own Your Body's Data, invites us to consider the possibility that having a basic understanding of our body's health data, blood pressure for instance, or pulse, blood sugar levels, can be a way to make sure that we get the health care that we need from our doctors and also perhaps to guard against unnecessary medical procedures. And when you watch that talk, you'll think to yourself, gee, maybe I'm more interested in data and statistics than I thought I was when I took that required stats class in college. That's because Statistician Williams has devoted her career to conveying statistical and mathematical ideas clearly and compellingly and interestingly, and doing so in many cases for audience filled with people who are convinced that they don't do math. Williams is an award-winning teacher and lecturer who is also one of the hosts of the PBS series Nova Wonders, a multi-part series that explores some of the biggest questions in science like can we build a brain, which is a big data topic right there. Williams has another mission as a science educator, to create a welcoming climate for girls and women of color as well as other groups who are underrepresented in STEM fields, especially math and statistics. She presents regularly on topics related to DEI and has authored a book about women mathematicians called Power in Numbers, the Rebel Women of Mathematics, a book that she wrote in part so that girls coming up in math would have the role models that she didn't have when she was a young girl just getting interested in mathematics. Talithia Williams is a professor of mathematics at Harvey Mudd College. She received a BA from Spelman. M.A.s from both Howard and Rice, and a Ph.D. from Rice University in statistics. A recipient of numerous awards for her lecturing and teaching, she has just been announced as the 2022 Joint Policy Board for Mathematics Communication Award winner for bringing mathematics and statistics into the homes and hands of millions through her work as a TV host, speaker and author. To Lithia Williams, welcome to ScienceWise. Lisa, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm really excited and so excited to welcome you to the Nobel conference this fall. So, as you know from what we've sent you about the conference, it attracts a really broad audience, everything from high school students who are taking um, mathematics classes, maybe just being introduced to statistics, all the way through to uh, PhDs in statistics, all the way through to lifelong learners who just continue to be interested in our topics. So, as a speaker that really demands this kind of weird interesting sophistication where you have to explain something in a way that the outsiders and the newcomers can understand but that also doesn't doesn't leave the professionals saying, oh my God, I can't believe how she dumbed that down. (laughs) So with that complicated lead in, Talithia Williams, how would you explain your work? And you can describe that in terms of the way that you see these various strands weaving together, Um, or you can tell me what you do on any given day or week or month or year, and what somebody would see if they were watching you.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you. It's funny because I've been in in those different strands as a student and a grad student and a stats professor and, you know, really engaging with the public and and even talking to family members, you know, and explaining to them what I do. Um, My graduate research Started out looking at rainfall and trying to model the way that rain moves, you know, across different terrains. Part of the impetus for that was Tropical Storm Allison, which was back in the, I think early two thousands um, in Houston, and it you know, kind of came through, flooded the city, and we weren't able to evacuate in time, you know. And and so um, I had all of that data and got to look at that to see if we could better predict and forecast um, the amount of rainfall given these different data points. I was looking at radar data, rain gauge data. So we have all these sort of disparate types of data that that weren't speaking to each other, but each has sort of rich pieces of information. So uh, my PhD thesis was looking at all these different data points, all this data that we collected during this storm to see could we have known earlier what the impact would have been. And so I got to sort of develop a model around that data. Um, So that was a lot of fun. I love doing things that have impact on society and impact on people because it really sort of drives me and fuels me like, yes, I want to solve this because you know, once I develop this model, we can then use that for the next rain event, you know, uh, <laughs> Hurricane Katrina. Right. Let's put this model to work to, to, to better forewarn people to, to get them out of the city when we can see that things are going to turn turn bad. Um, once I got to uh, uh, my position as a professor at Harvey Mudd, um, Harvey Mudd is all undergrad students. And so that was really great because, well, now. You know, I need to work with students who are freshmen and sophomores, um, juniors and seniors who aren't necessarily statistics specialists. Right. You know, they haven't taken grad work in stats, but they're really excited about what they can do with statistical modeling and data. And so uh, my research then transitioned to cataract modeling. So, again, like, you know, what's an issue that is prevalent in society and um, because it also gets my students passionate about, you know, modeling cataracts. We got to work with the World Health Organization because in the United States, cataracts, it's, we don't even talk about it. You go in, you get your cataracts taken out, you get lenses, it's a 20 minute surgery. You know, we don't even collect a lot of data on cataracts um, in our country, but in other countries and third world countries, uh, people are blind from cataracts. People, you know, and. And, and and so the World Health Organization really wants to place ophthalmologists in places that are in desperate need, but in order to know where to put them, you need to know where where is you know what areas have the most demand. And so we got to look at some um, some data from an, uh, a colleague of mine who's an ophthalmologist in, in Kilimanjaro, and so she shared some data with me. She said, "Hey, if we can try to model this and understand the rate at which different groups develop." cataract over time, so the incidence rate, then maybe we can better understand what areas are in higher need and what areas can sort of wait and go second and third. So that was sort of the direction that my research um, transitioned to once I once I became a professor. I had several students to work with me on that. They were really excited about doing that work. Again, it's modeling, it's data, it's real world, it's partnerships, international partnerships. And so for me, that's been great because it really kind of gives back to, to the community and, and to the world. Um, and then, uh, w- one of my students, you know, uh, reached out and asked me to do this TEDx talk, right? Local Claremont Colleges TEDx. And I was just like, I don't have time to do that. Like I'm busy. I've got so much. And, and so she convinced me to agree. And so I said, fine, you know, what's the topic? And she's like, it's storytelling. And I'm thinking I'm a statistician. Like I don't tell stories. I <laughs> data. I look at notes, like I'm so on the other end of storytelling, like, you know, um, really? and then I was like, why didn't you tell me that before I agreed? Uh, but I, I did. And so that made me think about, well, how can I, you know, Ted talks are meant to be for the general public, right? How do you get the general public to listen to you for 17 minutes and be excited about something that you have to say? And so as I thought about my research, which I love, you know, there's nothing there that's necessarily like, ooh, let me tell you about my cataract modeling and, you know, like hold you. Uh, I mean, it's interesting for me, but not necessarily the general public. And so that got me thinking about, well, you know, what is it? What are some of the topics that are affecting people that have to do with data and statistics? And so um, own your body's data was kind of birthed out of the need to you know, do this TEDx talk for my student (laughs) who asked me to. Uh, And but but it also sort of got me thinking about, well, you know, what are ways that we can really excite the public around statistics and data science, personal data mining? Um, And so this was in 2015, you know, wearables are picking up Fitbits and Apple watches and all these different ways to monitor and collect data. And yet there wasn't really a conversation around what do you do with it? How does it help you? How does it change your daily life? Uh, And so people were collecting a lot of data, but not really doing anything with the data that they observed. And so uh, for me, this this TEDx talk was just a way to sort of say, hey, we can collect data about our bodies and it can give us really valuable information if we take the time to really look at it. Uh, And so since then, I've really been excited about, um, engaging the public in this dialogue. What does it mean? to be a data scientist. And in some ways, every one of us are data scientists, right? We're always constantly processing information, processing data, and making decisions from it. And so that's really been sort of the the conversation that I've been excited to engage people with lately. Mm
0: -hmm. So I want to come back to a couple of things. First of all, it strikes me that being a statistician is kind of like being the the renaissance person. That is, you went from rainfall to cataract. And yes, there's the commonality of methods, methods used to analyze. But wow, I, I mean, that's, being a statistician means constantly being a newcomer or an outsider or a learner. Uh, can, to, I mean, you have to grapple with that new set of data about a new subject that you maybe know nothing about. I mean, you're not an oh, epidemiologist or a meteorologist. So how do you, how does a statistician train to be able to do that?
1: It's, you know, so the one thing that is constant is the numbers, right? Like, you know, the numbers are all the same. What those numbers are attributed to is what changes. So, right. Maybe those numbers refer to cataract. Uh, You know, maybe it refers to rainfall. Maybe it refers to something else. So the techniques that I that we learn, you know, to look at the numbers are consistent. Yes, I'm going to run a linear regression, or I'm going to do a, you know, a ANOVA. Right? These tests don't change. The only thing that changes is, like you say, the application of them. For me, that's part of what makes it exciting, and part of what makes me feel like I can contribute in so many different areas. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, usually if I'm a if I'm a chemist. it's, you know, it may be harder for me to do interdisciplinary work because, you know, people don't work with chemicals, you know, unless you've got chemicals and experiments, it's hard for a chemist to to partner with someone who might be, say, in a math department or computer science department. But for me as a statistician, everybody has data, right? Everybody's got data. They don't know what to do with it. They want someone who can look at it. And so In some ways, statisticians are, you know, you can be the glue that kind of keeps, you know, teams together um, that sort of communicates, you know, here's what your data is saying in a way that's very unbiased. Because, you know, because I don't have training as an ophthalmologist, I'm also not biased by the results. Right. I'm strictly, you know, analyzing the data, getting the results and saying, here's what it says. And then, you know, from their professional perspective, they can be like, oh, well, that's not what I see in the field. or Oh, I disagree with it. I'm like, well, that's just the data. You know, I'm not, you can agree or disagree, but, you know, here's the here's the analysis we did. Here's the results we got. And so it also means that I'm not tweaking. I'm, you know, I'm not trying to get something. Uh, I'm not trying to get a particular result because I don't you know, it's not my my area of specialty. The analysis of the data is my specialty. Um, and so in some ways, I think it helps. You know, as we get as we talk about data ethics, it helps it to come in as a novice, to come in as someone who is you know, really just there to focus on, let me get a very accurate uh, data analysis done prior to even understanding, you know, how these results impact, you know, um, impact our thoughts
0: one way or another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. It, and it does seem that 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 kind of fresh eye and that kind of ignorance and the willingness to ask the the question that might seem naive or silly But you can say, well, but I'm asking it as, I have this other profession here. And so you have to understand this isn't a silly question. This is an important question. Uh, It's a really interesting perspective to have. And it also means you know a lot about a lot of very unusual things, I bet. (laughs) I mean, you must learn a (laughs) lot about, you know, weird things as a result of this work.
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, one thing that came up um, when we were looking at cataract data, you know, cataract occurs in one eye and then, you know, first. So it doesn't, you don't just like get cataracts in both eyes. Um, it sort of shows up in one and it shows up in the other. And and most ophthalmologists, they know that. Like, if you know, if we've got to take one out, we know we need to take the other out. Sometimes we'll try to wait unless it gets really bad. We were able to model the time between development of your first cataract in one eye until it shows up in the second eye. And and it was just so neat to say, oh, look, you know, here's the, you know, if if you, once you get it in one eye, here's sort of a graph of the time distribution based on our data until people noticed it in their second eye. And I remember showing it to the ophthalmologist and she was like, I never thought about that. Like, yes, we know that it's going to occur in both, but we at no point do we think about, well, how long would I expect before I need to see this person again? And so here was the data that was saying, oh, this is about the time it takes Me. before you need to see someone again, or maybe you want to just wait a year and a half and do both eyes if you're, re- if you know, if you don't have resources. And so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we didn't even know that that was something we, you know, we weren't trying to find it. We were just like, oh, what does this data show us? Oh, here's something interesting. Wow. And so to see the light bulb go off, like, oh, this tells us exactly, you know, neat. Um, really what we neat. see in practice, but just had, didn't have numbers to support mm-hmm. uh, was really
0: a great experience, you know, for me and my students. Really neat. Um, I wanted to come back to another thing that you said in the in the telling uh, of your um, what it is that I do. And that is really? You didn't know you were a storyteller? Because when I watched that TEDx talk, and most of us call it a TED talk, and I realized, yeah, no, that was, you know, a local TED thing. So not even the big glitzy, fancy stage, but it, I mean, it has millions of views. Uh, and it, it you seem like a born storyteller. So really, you didn't already know that you were a storyteller when you did that? <laughs> That's hard to believe. I
1: did not. I did not. I grew up, um, I grew up in the South, in the in the church and so our church would have these yearly like christmas speeches easter speeches oratorical contest and we would all do them because we were just like oh you know my friends and i and so we grew up you know giving speeches uh, at church and you know for, for anyone that has a faith tradition there's not, you can't do anything wrong at church. You can get up you can blow it. You can forget all your lines and you get a standing ovation. It's like, that's okay. You did great. You tried your best. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. And so there was always this positive reinforcement to the point where after a while we actually got good at it. You know, we love that feeling of giving a speech and maybe blowing it, maybe not, but there was always this constant affirmation. So I think after years of that, I got very comfortable being on stage and And interacting because of that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that support that was
0: going to come regardless of my performance. That's Um, amazing. Which is a little different from, say, the classroom where they're happy to roll their eyes if you're not doing a good job that day. Oh, my goodness.
1: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. They really are. Um, You know, but it's funny. One thing that I learned from that, because I I wasn't always great at public speaking, but I was so affirmed that it made me feel like I was doing good. And so I wanted to keep doing it because I got these standing ovations and I got better at it as I practiced, right? And I think in some ways mathematics and statistics is the same. Often when folks are like, "Oh, I just I'm just not good at it." Part of it is, how do we affirm our students when they show up in our math classrooms? How do we even if they get it wrong, like how do we continue to encourage them instead of saying, you know what, Talithia, Ooh, you're not a good public speaker. You should just stop because that was horrible. It was horrible. But you know, the fact that folks are like, yes, keep going. Oh, you did great. Then I kept going. And so I think about that with my students, always trying to encourage them, even if they fail an exam, Hey, that's okay. These 10 questions you didn't know, but I bet there are 10 that you do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I just didn't ask those Mm -hmm, other 10. So, mm -hmm. you know, let's keep, let's keep pushing forward. Mm And then we train people and they get to the point where they become that thing that they were maybe not as good at Mm -hmm. when they first started. But if we don't encourage, if we don't say you can do this, let's keep pushing through, then we lose people Mm
0: -hmm. at the beginning. And I can't tell you, I don't know if this is true for you, but I cannot tell you how many people I've interviewed who say, oh, yeah, I got a C minus in my class that is now my discipline. And you think, "Whoa! I mean, that's that's just amazing to me. And their response to the C minus was not, oh, I guess I'm not good at this, but rather I'm going to beat that subject or I'm going to get to the bottom of this or I'm going to figure it out or I'm so curious. So I think that's that's a really great, a really great observation. Um, So, uh, switching back again, sorry for the back and forth here, but your career is very much interwoven, many pieces are interwoven, which means we might do this hopping back and forth a few times here. Your bio also notes that you are interested in the spatial and temporal structures of data. So, what does that mean? Yeah, so um,
1: that goes back to some of my graduate work that basically means looking at how data evolves over space and time so if you think about uh, rainfall data for example, let's say you're watching the news and they talk about the weather, they'll show you the Doppler effect and they show you sort of this blob of clouds <laughs> how it moves you know over say to you know the last ten minutes here's where it's going and then here's where we sort of forecast that it's gonna go. That's an example of spatial temporal modeling. You've got a system that you want to understand spatially where it's moving, so you need to model the spatial location. You also want to understand how it's changing over time, you know, how is it is it getting, you know, bigger, is it shrinking? It's also useful in modeling hurricanes, right? So anytime it's hurricane season, that's what we want to know. Where is it? Where is it going to go? Has it gotten bigger or smaller? So that's all space-time modeling. Um Hibernation patterns. So, if we're looking at an endangered species, and you know, wondering, okay, they're hibernating. Birds are flying south for the winter. Where are they? So, where's the spatial location? And then, how long does it take them to get to their destination? Right. What's the time that it take? So, all of those are sort of examples of space time modeling because you have these two components that you have to model separately. Um, what makes it challenging is that there's an entire branch of <laughs> you know, time series analysis, you know, modeling things over time. So for example, stock market data, that's an example of just a temporal series, like, you know, what was the stock price yesterday? What is it today? What will it be tomorrow? That's a time series. So that just shows you how something changes over time. There's also an entire branch of spatial statistics, right? How do, how do things change over space? Uh, and so when you combine them, You really have two different ways of modeling data, but you have data that exhibit both. So you have to sort of combine the spatial and the temporal component, model them together, um, and then also use that to try to predict, you know, where is this thing going to go in space and time?
0: Doubling the the complications, at least, or maybe exponentially increasing them. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So, um. You have done quite, you know. In addition to you know your discussion about Fitbits um, in a in a TED talk, I mean, you're you're pretty interested in health data. It seems to me you've done statistical research on cataract rates. Uh, and you also discussed your interest um, in some experiments. I, I, I saw you on a podcast called Strongly Connected Components. Yeah, remember that one?
1: Yes. You talked
0: about some experiments that you would like to do to help, their, help people use our health data differently. Can you talk about some of those? What are you, what are you hoping to have time to, to research either alone or with, with your students?
1: Um, one thing that came up uh, was looking at how our nutrition affects performance. Mm. And so for, you know, for universities and colleges that have a sports team, you know, what would it look like if, you know, everyone on the football team had a vegan diet leading up to the game, right? Because when we sort of think about strength and agility and performance, we think protein and meat and, you know, but when you look at the data, uh, that really sort of clogs you, it clogs your body. It kind of weighs you down. And what what gives you the most energy are these fruits and vegetables, right? These plant-based foods that are alive and, you know, working in your body. And so, you know, I, if you go to a football team and say, Hey, we're going to eat fruits <laughs> and veggies leading up to the game, you know, it's like, what are you talking about? Uh, But I think that that experiment would show that they have more energy. You know, they're able to get around the field and win more games. Right. And so if if the goal is winning, what does it take to get your body in the optimal condition to win? So, yes, you're exercising. Yes, you're in the weight room. But what goes in can sometimes, especially before game day, is often junk. It's like uh, meat, potatoes that, you know, carbohydrates. these things that are going to fill you up and, and fuel you, but in effect, what they do to your body isn't exactly fuel you. So those are the kind of experiments that would be interesting to try, right? Like, okay, let's, let's put our sports team on a two, two week vegan program and let's see if they have more energy. Maybe they win the game, maybe they don't, but you can often tell when your diet changes, right? What your physical output, like, oh, I made it all the way through the third quarter before I even needed a break, you know, Um, so those are things that I think we can just, that was kind of one of the experiments I was thinking about. Like, it'd be neat to actually test and see, you know, how is it that the, you know, what we eat, uh, how does that affect what we do? Um, Mm -hmm. because of course studies show that, yes, when I eat better, I feel better when I eat more plant-based foods, I have more energy. Uh, but let's, Let's see what it does to the basketball team. Like, you know, if it gives you more energy, if you feel good, then is your performance better? Do you score more points? You know, do you get more rebounds? Do
0: you get down the court faster because you've got more energy? Um yeah. It'd be fascinating and, and definitely the kind of project that would really intrigue students. I would think.
1: Oh, totally. To- and you know, once you get a community on board of support, right. You know, cause it's not like a punishment or plant-based, but you know, a community that's like, yes, our, our basketball team is plant-based leading up to the game. Like let's all jump on board. Let's get excited. Let's get behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think mm-hmm. it could be
0: really fun to do. Oh, it's a neat idea. That's a neat idea. <laughs> so, um, discussing that work really, um, does um, lead nicely into talking a little bit more about your career as as public speaking. So yeah. you sort of suggested that um, your your talk came out of sort of saying, "Well, I need to talk about something because a student has asked me to do it." But but you know this idea of show me the data is is what you were led to. And for those for those who haven't seen the talk, I wonder if you can just sort of briefly summarize what you what you talked about. And you've got some really dramatic stories. That yes. Tell
1: yes. Well, About helping yes, the Williams family. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, it started with me kind of sharing my experience in um, when we were pregnant with our our third child, and sort of my interaction with uh, medical doctors and um, and them wanting to induce me based on some some data and having that conversation with the doctor you know so so I'm trying not to go into too much detail sure. but just sort of you know I'd been collecting data they had data on the general population and so the conversation was sort of okay you know how do, how do you take your general knowledge your doctor's expertise and couple it with the information that you bring as an individual which is also very valid right here's my data here's what I've been collecting here's what I know about my body and and at the time that information was not taken seriously by, and this was just a doctor on call. This wasn't my personal doctor. This was, you know, uh, and so it was sort of like, oh, that's nice. That's nice that you've been collecting your little data, but you know, studies of women, or, you know, show this. And I'm like, well, yes, studies of women, but here's the woman and here's her data, you know? So let's look at the woman and her data and let's, let's talk about that. Um, so, you know, that first part was really trying to empower people because, you know, again, this was 2015 that the TED Talk was done. But this is for my son who was born in 2012. Right. So this is all sort of pre the time when folks were like, I've got all this data. You know, I'm I'm literally putting dots on a on a, you know, uh, on a graph every morning to to chart my temperature data. Right. And so um It it wasn't like a really slick, oh, here's my app, you know, scroll, scroll, scroll. Uh, It was it was very rudimentary. And in some ways, I think the doctor was just like, you know, ma'am, you don't know what you're doing. You know, here's what I've studied. Um,
0: Oh, and and we also know that women always lie when they write things down, right? (laughs) Oh my goodness!
1: Oh my goodness! Yeah, it was, and and you know, of course, I didn't go in saying, "Oh, by the way, I've got a PhD in statistics." You know, I didn't lead with that. I, I came in as a pregnant woman, yeah. um, and so I, I think there was also a bit of uh, it, uh, underestimating my knowledge as well, right? Because at no point did I share my profession, mm-hmm. and and of course, when we start talking data and statistics, I'm like, "Dude, oh yeah, uh, you know, we I, we can go head to head." Um, And he couldn't quite go head to head. And so I (laughs) think he quickly realized like, oh, this she's asking me questions that I don't even know. And so I'm like, well, you know, I I don't think we need to be induced based on what you're saying. It doesn't sound like you have enough data to induce me. Um, And, you know, and, and nothing against inductions, but it does it can lead to complications and, you know, and, and, um, and so there was just a, a reluctance or a resistance to hear the information that I was trying to share. And it was almost like some intimidation as well. Like, Ooh, you just don't know. Well, I'm just trying to think about what's best for you. You're going to have to sign a waiver if you leave. And so it's sort of like this very threatening, you know, like if you don't do what we say, you have to sign a waiver. That means it's not our fault. If Anything happens. And so, mm-hmm. um, But because I was very confident in my data, you know, and confident in my body, um, I felt very comfortable saying, okay, yeah, we're going to sign a waiver. And people were just like, what are you doing? Oh, do you, you know, and I'm just, you know, and I'm like, well, I'll come back when the baby's ready, but it doesn't seem like the baby's ready right now. So we're just going to go home and, you know, um, and I don't encourage people to just walk out on, you know, I mean, we, we were induced with our first son because our amniotic fluid was low. So, you know, I'm not like, you know, I'm going to go birth this baby in the woods. (laughs) Definitely not, you know, but uh, a a 20 minute stress test where one minute it looks like it takes my heart rate and then it jumps back to the baby and you say, Ooh, I think we just need to get that baby out. I'm like, well, you know, let's do it again. If you know, if you're that concerned, let's, let's not make a rash decision on something that seems like, yeah. It's just an error in how the data was recording.
0: So, um, so one of yeah. the really powerful things about that story, as I listened to it and thought about it in the context of a conference about big data, is, is that you could kind of call it the clash between big data and little data, right? Or, yeah. you know, yeah. now I guess it's more like big, big data and personal big data, because I know that if you have a Fitbit, it actually generates a ream of stuff every day. <sighs> But, um, you know, like, how do you how do you think about that topic, maybe in the context of, you know, one's health care, but also more generally, how do you counsel us to think about our own data, you know, owning our own data in relation to this, you know, in relation to the face of, you know, massive reams of data? Are there ways for us as individuals to think about how to be responsible you know, users of our own data. Do you see what I'm asking there? It's like Mm. one person's data versus a million person's data. What do I do? How how should I, how should I think about that? How do I even think about that?
1: Yeah. I, so I like to, um, to, to think of it in terms of ranges and averages. Um, because for example, even with the conversation with the doctor. This idea of of a 40 week pregnancy. It's really the average. Right? It's really that the average woman is pregnant for 40 weeks. Most women are not pregnant for 40 weeks. They're pregnant for 40 weeks and 3 days, 39 weeks and 2 days. 36 weeks, 42 weeks. Right. But so when, so sometimes when you have all this data and you look at the average, no one is there. No one is really average. <laughs> all of us are spread out with our little data points. And yes, we make up the average, but no, we, there is no average mm-hmm. 40 week, you know, mm-hmm. right. The so the number of women right. who birth exactly 40 weeks after conception is pretty small, right? There's a range and we all fall in that range. And so I think the challenge becomes when a healthcare provider says, I've got all this data and the average is 40 weeks and you're at 41, you're off. It's like, no, I'm 41 is part of that average. The way we got to 40 is that we've got some <laughs> 41s and 42s and we've got some 39s and 38s. Right. right. And so, you know, the, the thought that, you know, 40 is ideal. And 40 in one day means we got to get that baby out. It's just the wrong type of thinking. And so I think that's, you know, when we look at personal, like when I bring my personal data to the table, I'm saying, yes, I respect this 40 week average. But let's keep in mind that part of what makes up all of this information is that you've got outliers, you've got women whose bodies behave differently, whose bodies take a little bit longer to bake, Junior. <laughs> You've got some that are like, get Junior out. It's been 36 <laughs> weeks, he's good, he's already eight pounds. Yeah. Um, and so I think sometimes we don't, we don't rely on women's bodies. We just say, well, we gotta get that thing out of you because it's been too long. Well, too long relative to what? To the average, which no woman is, right? And so I think the danger is when we start to compare ourselves to the ideal or what a doctor thinks is ideal, um, the, the, it also comes up with, remember when, um, pilot seats were not adjustable. And so there were all these accidents in aircraft because pilots were having trouble, you know, reaching things. It was sort of built for the ideal size, you know, 25 year old guy. Uh, and all of these accidents were happening and they were wondering, well, why is it? Well, It was built to fit the ideal of which none of those, none of the pilots were, right? Some are a little taller, a little shorter, hands are longer. And so as soon as they made a seat that was adjustable, all of a sudden we can get in and adjust. Like imagine getting into a car and you can't adjust the seat and you have to drive it. And so you're sort of like, well, this is, oh, well, my mirror is a little bit off, but it was built for the average person. And <laughs> I just got to make it work, right? We would think that's crazy. As soon as you get into a car, you're like, oh, let me lift the seat. Let me lower the steering wheel. Let me adjust the mirrors. like Let me customize it for my body so that I can best operate it.
0: Um, and I notice as you're talking that you switch from the word average to the word ideal as if the average becomes the right answer to the question, which is a really interesting thing. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. those of us who are confronted with a body of data sort of feel like that sometimes, well, this must be the right, the right answer, as opposed to, as you point out, what you get if you add up 39 and 41 and divide by two, That's right. you, get, <laughs> you know, you get 40, <laughs> which is really interesting, really interesting. So, right. um. When you talk about statistics with non-statisticians, which you do a lot in a lot of different I kinds know. of contexts, are there sort of general principles, general things you're trying to accomplish or obstacles you're trying to overcome for people? I saw you give a talk. Uh, I think it was called, well, I called it how to lie with statistics, but it's <laughs> like how stats yes. mislead us. I think you gave it at Grand Valley in yes. uh, Michigan.
1: Lisa, you've been doing your homework. I've been
0: doing my homework. Yes, I have. So, um, you know, how, how, what are what are you trying to do there? I mean, are there,
1: yeah. Yeah. You know, part of that was birthed out of traveling and people asking, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I'm a mathematician. Sad. Oh, I hate math. Let me tell you the moment which I first knew I hated it, you know, um, and so people have very strong stories and by, you know, I'm, I'm sure folks who are listening right now um, feel like either you're a mad person or you're not. And if you're not, you remember the moment you started hating it. You remember the teacher, you remember the experience, you remember how you felt. And so part of why I I love to engage the public is to try to change that narrative, try to try to just, you know, th- there are ways to see math and data and statistics in ways that are really exciting. And believe it or not, we, we, we see it as a part of our daily life, whether we like it or not. Um, the way we make decision is based on probabilities, you know. And so it shows up in so many ways um, outside of maybe this bad experience that you had with math or with a teacher or, or in the discipline. And so that's really been, for me, part of the impetus is to change that narrative, to get people to see what makes it exciting and enjoyable. And it's not always calculations. You know, it's not always um, sort of the the technical part. Uh, Often there are stories behind the numbers, right, that make it more exciting and engaging. And so I love connecting people to those stories behind the numbers
0: because that can also get them a bit more excited about the, the subject in general. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I completely appreciate that point. I, I remember being at a few talks by colleagues who are statisticians who talked about data visualization. And I just couldn't believe how interesting it was to think about how can we convey this information in a way that also somehow embodies that information. And I thought, Well, this yes. is also
1: art. Yeah. That's right. That's right.
0: So that's one kind of audience to whom you speak publicly. Um, But you also have a big focus both in your public speaking and in your teaching, whether it's your own students or it's workshops or the great courses opportunities you've had. Um, You are mentoring the next generation of data scientists and you are trying to make sure that that next generation looks different from previous generations. That is, you are trying to make this a place that is welcoming to young women of color and other underrepresented groups. Can you talk about about that work and how you understand it and and how you how you found yourself being effective in doing that vital work?
1: Yeah, you know, so growing up, I definitely did not see black women who were mathematicians, statisticians, data scientists. Um, I saw black women who were like doctors and lawyers, you know. So, and, but but scientists, you know, uh, physicists, computer scientists, chemists, engineers. I didn't really see that level of specificity. And so I sort of knew like, yes, I can become a doctor. I can become a lawyer. This idea of a mathematician was not something that was a reality for me. And it wasn't that I thought I couldn't, you know, and I was, I was decent in math, but, but part of your part of believing that you can do something is seeing that someone before you has done it. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, and so my, you know, my senior year of high school, I'm taking AP calculus and I'm doing Okay. You know, I'm not like a star student. I'm not failing. I'm, I'm middle of the road. Um, and my AP calculus teacher, who was a middle-aged, which at the time I thought was old. I think he was probably in his late <laughs> 50s. You know, the older I get, I'm like, he was a young guy. <laughs> but uh, Mr. Dorman, he pulls me to the side one day after class. And he says, hey, it's Lithia, you know, you're really talented in math. You should think about majoring in it when you go to college. All of seven seconds, right? See you tomorrow. And I'm like, Oh. Math? Really? And you know, Lisa, that stuck with me. I was just like, wait, you think I'm good at math? Like, obviously, you haven't graded my last exam. <laughs> um, and you think I should major in it? Not if I go to college, right? But when you go to college, you should major in math. And so he really planted a seed that I was like, oh, oh, so doctor, lawyer, and math, apparently, because Mr. Dorman thinks I can do math. So that's now on the table too. You know and it's amazing how mm-hmm. that one moment with him affirmed my mathematical ability. And I think it also came from the fact that he was so different from me. Like who is this old white guy who's affirming me? He doesn't have to. I mean, you know, there nobody's like, "Oh, you know, make sure you tell Talithi on the way out the door today that she can do math." You know, it wasn't it wasn't like something that was scripted it was really just sort of an offhand comment. Hey, you're doing great. Think about math. And, and here I am today. Um, And so that really stuck with me when I got to Spelman college. So I've got this seed planted from Mr. Dorman. um, But you know, when the rubber hits the road, it's not easy to just major in math. You know, you, you missed my air quotes there. It's not easy to major in math. Um, But I got to this environment, this historically black college for women and met black, women mathematicians, professors, Etta Faulkner, Sylvia Bozeman. And so all of a sudden I see examples of Black women mathematicians. And I'm like, oh, so this thing that Mr. Dorman said I could do, I really can do. Because look, here's four right here in front of me. And so all of a sudden this idea became, became a very tangible reality. It didn't make it any easier when I struggled in math. That didn't mean that math was just a breeze and, you know, I sailed through. I definitely didn't. What made it, uh, what it did help with was that when things got difficult, when I was ready to quit, I could say, you know what? I know these women who came before me. It was hard for them. They told me it's going to be challenging. They knew I'd get to this point. How do I push through? And so I think it helped me not to give up, knowing that folks who look like me have come before me and done it successfully. And so I think when I, you know, when I think about my legacy and my desire to, you know, broaden participation in the mathematical sciences, it's really rooted in that. How do I show girls of color, people of color, girls in general, that they can do math? Um, Part of it is encouraging Part of it is just affirming their ability, whether they think they're good or not. You know, I think when Mr. Dorman affirmed my ability, I definitely didn't think I was his star student. You know, I was like, oh, bless your heart. You just haven't graded my homework. Right. And so and so it wasn't about me being so stellar and rising to the top that I caught his attention. He was really very intentional in for each of his students, making sure that they felt affirmed no matter where they were in the grade book. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I think that was important, uh, visibly seeing women, black women, mathematicians has been key. And so part of my desire, um, in the, the, the book that I authored power in numbers, right. The rebel women of mathematics is to highlight, you know, not everybody gets to have a Mr. Dorman experience. Not everybody gets to go to Spelman and be taught by black women, mathematicians. So how do you learn about these women? Um, And get inspired by their life story and see yourself, see yourself on the pages of of this book and know that it's an option for you. You don't have to do math, but I want you to know that you can if you want to and that we're here to help you get through it. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. I read uh, uh, maybe a review of the book that said, gosh, I hate that there has to be such a book, but boy, I'm glad that there is such a book. Meaning, what, what does that mean? You want to unpack that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's often, um, often women and people of color are sort of excluded from the historical narrative. And so when you think about, um, you know, the birth of subjects, even though women were very present, Grace Hopper, for example, is a great example. It's only recently that we sort of have really recognized her contribution. There was a conference in her honor. Um, but, you know, at the, the birth of these subjects, there were, it was often, you know, predominantly male, predominantly European. And so women have just been historically excluded from that narrative. And sometimes the exclusion can lead you to believe that we're, we're not present, we're not active in it. Uh, For me, the movie Hidden Figures, you know, when Hidden Figures came out and I was like, whoa, all these women were, you know, human computers, you know, uh, white women, black women, you know, uh, even during this time of intense segregation in our country, here was an example of everybody sort of working toward this common goal. Um, But many of us don't grow up hearing that. We don't grow up knowing that there were, you know, the, the Catherine Johnsons of the world black women who who were great mathematicians. And so I re- I just remember sitting there watching the movie thinking, "Oh, like I wasn't the first black woman to work at NASA?" Like, what? You know, uh, um and just not having learned those stories. And so I think that's why it's so necessary that we tell those stories. You know, the book tells some of those stories, the movie tells those stories because people and and not just not just black girls need to see, but everyone needs to see. Um that we can, all, you know, we all have the ability, we all have the talent, the the drive, you know, the passion to be successful, and um, and we have to create the environment for everyone to be successful as well. And so I, I think those are it's it's so great to have those examples because then you say, oh, well, if all these women could do it, then you know, what's stopping us now? You know, why are why aren't there more women in STEM? Because obviously they're talented. You know, they were doing the calculations for the astronauts. You know, so what is it that we need to do Mm -hmm. and what is it that we're doing that's maybe hindering um, them
0: from being as active in our discipline? Mm -hmm. So you uh, you studied at Spelman, Historically Black College for Women. You now teach at Harvey Mudd this interesting institution, a liberal arts college where everybody's an engineering or physical science or math major. Yeah. What's, um, you know, how how do you, what are your jobs at Harvey Mudd to ensure that that population, which I'm going to guess is not predominantly women of color, um, you know, how do you help that population come to understand that the future should look more diverse than the past?
1: Yeah. Well, fortunately, I'm not, I'm not the only one that holds that belief at Harvey Mudd. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you are the 19... first African-American woman to be tenured. Is that right? I, am. I was pretty darn surprised am. to realize that.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, I, up until about 1996, Harvey Mudd was only about 20% women. And so it has historically been a very male, predominantly male, predominantly white space. And Uh, Currently, we're at parity with women. So women are half of our our population. Um, And among many majors, computer science, for example, engineering, women are 50% of the majors. And so it's really amazing to see how the college has worked hard to make sure that our disciplines reflect society, right? That the balance of our disciplines, that our majors, um, are reflective of our students I think we are also trying to put in that work when it comes to to underrepresented groups right making sure that our student body looks like our country or better right even even better and so our our admissions team you know we've got faculty that volunteer to call and email our new um, students every year to really try to recruit them almost, right? Like they're coming out to be on our football team, but to really recruit them to choose Harvey Mudd and to choose this community. And then we have to do the work when they get there. So it's not just about like, yes, we've got all these, you know, bright, diverse kids. Look at us. We look like the model you in. Okay, go forth. And, you know, we hope you make it and graduate in four years. Um, the beginning is just bringing them there, right? Getting them there is just the beginning. And so then how do we create an environment that's equitable? How do we create classrooms where everybody feels included and welcomed? Um, and not just, you know, you should be thankful <laughs> that you're in this space, you know? Um, walking on Spelman's campus, part of the beauty in that experience is that it was created for Black women, right? And everyone there is, there to empower Black women. You know, the founders founded it for Black women. Um, And so, so when you walk around that campus, you get this sense of pride and ownership, right? Everyone is there for your success. And it's a feeling that, you know, after four years of it, it was just like, wow, this just feels amazing. Like everywhere I go, there's affirmation, there's encouragement. You can do this. We're so proud of you. You know, from the janitor to the cashier, you know, in the lunch line to the whoever, right? It was just oozing with, we're so proud, you know, go Black girl, you can do it. Everybody doesn't get that feeling when they walk around their campuses. And it wasn't until I got to other spaces where I felt like, oh, this is different, right? I got to Rice and I was like, oh, this is a different feeling. Not that it's not welcoming, but it's not like, it's not like I'm at home. It felt like I was at someone, you know, a friend's house. I can't just put my feet up on the table because it's not my table, <laughs> you know, but, but I'm welcomed to stay right here in the living room. <laughs> don't go to the back. Don't go to the bedrooms. Definitely don't go in the bathroom back there. But, you know, and so it almost sometimes felt like a guest, mm. you know, as opposed to like, this is my place. <laughs> this is my home. This is where I can relax and be myself. Um, and so, and so for for me. And I think for us at Harvey Mudd, it's like, how do we not just bring diverse students, not just welcome them and, you know, be excited that, that they're there. How do we make this place feel like their home, make this place feel like, you know, that they can take ownership of it instead of you're a guest in someone else's space.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a really great description. That's a really, really wonderful description. Thank you for that you're welcome another thing that you do at harvey Mudd is you are the dean of experiential education that sounds like fun what what are your aspirations or goals or what are the things that you try to do through that through that education? yeah
1: yeah so i no longer have that
0: role oh, okay. um it's
1: a it's a rotating <laughs> three-year position so i've rotated out of oh, that okay. position um still happy to, to, to talk about it though uh um, so that 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 associate dean role was really kind of looking at, um, you know, working with faculty. How do we do experiential learning in the classroom? Maybe it's a flipped classroom or, you know, how are we engaging students through clickers or, or different modalities? Um, also working with like our we have a clinic program and a thesis program. so you know, basically any way that you're engaging students sort of outside that very traditional classroom experience is a part of experiential learning. Here's how I want you to experience what you're learning and not just sort of sit and be lectured to. Um, And then also working with faculty to to write grants, whether it's their research grants or grants to enhance their teaching. And so really just sort of a partnership with faculty and students to enhance that in the classroom, but also that out of the classroom learning experience.
0: Mm -hmm. Cool. I'm looking at my clock and realizing that, as always, I've, I've, um, I've not allowed enough time for all the things we want to talk about. But I wonder if we could switch gears to talk a little bit about, as you know, the Nobel conference is about science and its ethical implications. And uh, when I listen to your TED talk, just to take one instance, um, it really raises a lot of questions about um Ethics, particularly with regard to personal data. Um, how do you think about the risks and opportunities of of collecting data these days? Now, I, I noticed in the talk, for instance, I think you said, mm-hmm. "I won't have my DNA done. I don't. I, I don't." Uh, so that I mean, and maybe that's a choice you'd make differently now. But but, like, how do you how do you help us to think about um, risks and opportunities of what happens with our data, and, and how do you see your responsibilities as a statistician when you know that you are working with, with bodies of data that are about people's real lives?
1: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard because data now has become so, um, so personally identifiable. Um, we often, you know, as soon as we download an app or go to a website, it's asking for consent. And often we don't really think twice about that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm, I want to browse. I want to order something, you know, click and move on. Uh, but we're really giving permission to to spy on us. We're sort of opening up our, you know, privacy. And so it really kind of gets into this question of ethics and data ethics and what are you doing with my data and are you selling my data? And have I given you permission inadvertently? Right by consenting? There's a lot of language in there we don't read, and you probably say, "Yes, we're going to track you on our website, but we're also going to track where you go after, and you know we're going to keep tracking until you tell us we can't somehow." Um, so that's that's never really clear. The other thing that's not clear is um, once we give someone permission. So let's say we do a 23andMe or Ancestry DNA. How do I revoke that? What happens mm-hmm. if I change my mind? You know what? I said you could use my data, but mm-mm, I don't want you to use it anymore. I, I think I want to retain ownership of it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, there's not an easy way to do that. There's not an easy out. There's not an unsubscribe button to click mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to get my data back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so why is it so difficult mm-hmm. to know who has access to your data and how you can regain that access or continue to allow it? When I think 23andMe Me. Um, you know, sold DNA data to GlaxoSmithKline. It was a multi-million dollar deal. Who saw that money? You know, um, and so and so. Then the question becomes: Well, if you're making money off of my data, even if my data is a small data point, it seems like I ought to have some share in the sell of it. Sure, it's anonymized, okay, but still, it's my data. You're selling my DNA data to a pharmaceutical company that's going to then try to build drugs. Target it based on my DNA to sell back to me. And so then the question becomes, well, where does, you know, how does, how does profit sharing work when, yes, I've paid to get my DNA uh, sampled. You've sold that information because I gave you permission to. I said, you know, yes, use it for research. And now a company is making a targeted drug that I didn't have to turn around and pay for if I need it uh, for my health. I don't think we've had those conversations. It's not clear, and so I think you know companies are sort of making these moves um, and and we have no choice in that other than just to say no up front. but then you know how do you connect with family members? right? If you say no, no one can find you, you can't find anyone. so you sort of want to say yes so that you can see where your ancestors are and see if there are people out there who are related to you and so it's sort of a catch 2020 um mm-hmm. There's also issues I think in implicit bias. So sometimes we lean so much on decision making, automated decision making, and we don't question the mechanism behind it. We don't question the model. We think the model must be innocent. The model can't be sexist. It can't be racist. It can't be classist. But if it's built on data that humans have produced, you know, humans are uh racist, sexist, classist, maybe not intentionally, you know, um, but if that shows up in the data, it's going to show up in the model and then the model is just going to perpetuate it. Um, so recidivism models are a, a great example of that, right? If you've got a white male and a black male with convicted of the exact same crime or you know, exact same thing, uh, the white male gets less time for the same crime because the, the algorithm is, is biased against African-Americans. And so why is that? Well, the data that has fed into it has been decision making that has historically been biased. And so the prediction becomes biased. So I think it's up to not just data scientists, but the public in general to say, no, you know, this, this isn't good. Like we need to challenge these algorithms that we allow to sort of run our lives and make decisions for us. We need to question them and not just assume that they're completely free of error and and free of bias.
0: And, and not, as you say, actually not just bias somehow accidentally intruded into them but actually rooted in in biased assumptions. I want right. I wonder if you and and hopefully this is something we'll really be able to dig into at the conference but I wonder if you have thoughts in advance of that about where those interventions start? I mean, one of the things that hear you saying is that we as public citizens need to get interested and involved, and maybe write to companies, but maybe also write to our rep- elected representatives and so on. But mm-hmm. where or how do you have any thoughts as a statistician about how we begin to unbake un- that cake? Um, yeah, that's a um, weird metaphor, okay. but you know what I mean. Like <laughs> unbake the cake. Uh, I think
1: I think maybe part of it has to do with questioning uh, how decisions were made, um, Part of my interaction with my doctor was it wasn't sort of a rejection of the data, but it was sort of questioning his decision based on the data right mm-hmm. And so I think this idea of of the public consumer as someone who's seeking, questions, who's asking questions, seeking answers, instead of just being told to accept something as fact as truth Mm -hmm. is maybe a a first step. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's also important for us to train the next generation of students to really be ethically minded. And so no matter what your major is, how do you think ethically about how policies are affecting different people? Um, the New York stop question and frisk policy is a great example of that. Right. It disproportionately affected, you know, young black and brown men yeah. and, and you know, didn't get guns off the street with a higher percentage, didn't result in, in a higher percentage of arrests. But all of these men were being pulled over and sort of assumed guilty until proven innocent, you know. And so and so, so, what does that do to a person? Yes, it's one thing to sort of say, okay, we're not going to do this policy, but it was in effect for years. And the data was, you know, there was no improvement in the data. There was no reduction in crime, uh, but it was negatively affecting this entire population of people. Um, and so, so, you know, part of our job as citizens is to draw attention to that and to say, hey, you know this isn't something that is fair and equitable so we need to change it so yes we can write to our governor or mayor or you know senator congressperson and say you know this isn't being a, a fair equitably and and we need to change it and then i think for those of us who are like in statistics in data science you know this is our our bread and butter we really have to start pushing companies and organizations to to provide to to show the black box, right? And so, so much of these models is proprietary. <laughs> and so if you do have a question, if you do want to push back, you can't, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, this is our proprietary model. We can't show you the bells and whistles. It's like, but I, I understand the bells and whistles I want to see because I feel like, you know, something in this algorithm is off. And so I think if there was a way that it had to be sort of mandatory or you have to you know, your, your model needs to be vetted by this professional group, right? No, they're not going to take your trade secrets and sell them to your competitor, but they need to to test your model on data. They need to make sure that your predictions are the same for women and men, right? For Asians, you know, and, you know, African-Americans, right? And so someone who can say like, we, we need to test this for equitability, um, even if it's proprietary, even if it's black box, it needs to go through this in order to be applied and used in the public. I I think that's sort of like almost like a governing body that we need, like, oh, we need a statistical governing body that looks at these algorithms before they can be used to almost give like a stamp of approval, kind of like the FDA, right? You know, you can't just go out and start selling food. So, you know, just here's a new fruit that I came up with let me take it to the market. No, you know. And so um, I think the same should be true about when we develop these models and algorithms, there needs to be some organization that vets them and signs off to make sure that they're fair and equitable.
0: That's an interesting proposal. That's a really interesting proposal. Um, I think... Well, I'm, I'm sure you know well that there was this sort of enthusiasm that somehow once we have big data, we have big m- amounts of data that somehow the bias that is baked, you know, again, baked into the cake of American society will somehow magically disappear because we'll just have so much data. And I mean, you point to one very um, infamous mm-hmm. instance of the, the data being used in courts to decide how, you know, recidivism rates uh, yeah, as yeah. one one. Powerful illustration that no magically um, bias does not does not disappear. I'm interested in this idea. I hope you'll have a chance to uh, wave that idea around at the conference. Yeah, yeah. Um, looking at the the clock, I want to at least ask a couple more questions. You've you've talked a bit about your coming of age and and your early interests and so on, your high school experiences and your experiences at Spelman. I'm I just want to ask a couple of other questions. Um, yeah. What besides mathematics and statistics would you say you studied as an undergraduate that you now find oddly important at this stage in life? I mean, you told a powerful story about, you know, learning to give speeches in church. That's obviously <laughs> really important. But are there other things that maybe you studied that at the time you thought, oh, for heaven's sakes, this is ridiculous. Why do I have to do this? And now you think, wow, that, I can't even believe how regularly I use that.
1: Mm. Oh, that's such a great question. I, I think when I, when I got to Spelman, I definitely saw uh, Black women as a monolith. Uh, many of the Black girls that I grew up with, we sort of dressed the same, hair was the same, you know. And so the idea of there being so much diversity <laughs> within one group, was very foreign to me and so when i got to this campus and i saw black women with natural hair and all these different shades of black women and um different styles of dress and different religions and faith belief and atheist and agnostic and christian and muslim it was so eye-opening because i was so used to a certain kind of black woman that all of a sudden i was like oh like there's so much variety and diversity just within you know black women that I wasn't, I was never really exposed to. And, and, and for me, I think, you know, one of the biases that sometimes I bring to the table is how do you see people as individuals when you're not close to a group? When, you know, when, when a group is very different from you, we can often look at that group and say, well, like, I don't know. All my Asian students look the same. Like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, I'm so sorry. I called you the wrong name. And, you know, you know, um, and, and, and I'm, I'm guilty of that. It wasn't until we, I, we did, we hosted an exchange two exchange students, two Asian girls. Uh, we hosted them for two weeks in our house and, you know, they were doing all this, you know, programming. There was like a choir and, you know, and this, this entire group, came over, and at the end, sort of the culmination, they had this presentation, and I remember looking on stage, and it's like a hundred, you know, uh, Asian girls, and looking at our two, like, oh, they're so-and-so, it's, oh my God, look at them, they're doing so great, <laughs> and it hit me, it's like, oh, you know, it's about building relationship, you know, when we look at a group, and we're sort of separate from them, and it's like, oh, everybody's just blending, I don't know, and And all of a sudden, like having these two people live with us and get to know us, it was so obvious that they looked so different. Like, oh, no, they don't look anything like, you know, Oh look, no, look at these features. Um, And part of that was just, you know, cluing in to what makes them an individual instead of just sort of looking broadly at a group. I first learned that at Spelman, but it didn't really come to life until I realize, like, oh, I do this with Asians. Like, oh, I sort of look and I'm like, uh. and then building this relationship, getting to know people, um, almost like with twins, right? You know, if you've got twins mm-hmm. that you grew up with yes. and you, you know, identical twins and you see them, you know them, you're like, oh no, they're so different. Look, so-and-so's got a little mole right there. So-and-so's got that wink that they do, you know, because you have this relationship with them. So they don't look identical to you anymore. They look, they're very individual. Um, That was probably something I took from Spelman and have since really tried to apply as I interact with people and especially my students on on a regular basis. How do I see them as individuals instead of just here's a sea of students that I have no connection with? But, you know, how do I really form those connections and start to see? them as, as individual
0: people mm-hmm. and not sort of as this collection mm-hmm. of folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a neat answer. And then you can individually sidle up to those students and say, I think you should major in stats. That's right. That's
1: <laughs> right. That's right. Change in the world. One, I think you can major in stats conversation at a time. <laughs> there Yes. Go.
0: yes. The, last, <laughs> the last question I always like to ask people is if you had an opportunity to speak to a group of people and you knew you would be listened to and maybe Act, your words would be acted upon. What would who would be the group of people, and what would you like to tell them? I mean, I'm thinking it's something about uh, data science, but maybe it's not. Who would you like to say what to, knowing that they'd listen? Mm. <laughs> my cheeky answer would be my kids <laughs> um, to clean oh, their room. Right? I mean, this is an <laughs> imaginary game, but not that imaginary. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, gosh, I, so it would probably be, uh, first year college students Mm -hmm. and the advice would be to, to journal, um, to sort of begin a daily practice of journaling. I th- the older I get, <laughs> the more I look back on, and not just college years, but college is sort of really, I think, when you start to make friendships that could last a lifetime. High school friends, some of them I'm still in touch with, but for the most part, college is sort of the friendships that, that will last and can last for life. Um, and, and journaling really just sort of records your frame of mind at the time, because the older we get, the more we, <laughs> the more I think, oh, I made such great decisions. Like, oh, you know, I ended up here because I was such a great, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and when I'm critical of myself, I'm like, you know what? No, I think I went to that party that time. <laughs> and I came back and I went and I failed that math test, you know. <laughs> and so, but, you know, when you become a success, you often forget about these these things that you did. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm talking to my students and maybe they fail an exam or they fail a class and they're like, oh, I'm so ashamed. Oh, Prof Williams, I'm so sorry. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. You and me both. Let me tell you about 1998 when I was taking abstract algebra, you know. And so just to, to, to be able to remember, but and also just remember how you're changing over time mm-hmm. to look back and to be gracious with yourself because often we can be very, hard on ourselves like okay i've done four years of college and two years of grad school and what do i have to show for it well part of it is that your thinking is so different your mm-hmm. thinking from when you were a freshman is so different from what you think about now um but because it's always how you thought you're never really critical of it you never really look back and examine your thoughts but having this journal it's like oh this is oh that was crazy oh, i liked who <laughs> Yeah. He was no good. Right. And so you know, you can really sort of look back and process Mm -hmm. that um, in a way that you're not able to with just photos, you know? Uh, Yeah. That, that would be my advice. And it doesn't have to be just first year college students, but just, you know, if I had to narrow Mm -hmm. it to a group because they've got, you know, four or five years in front of them to really, um, you know, really kind of understand and write about this time, all the ups and the downs and all these different experiences that come uh, once you're, Sort of out on your own, but not quite. You know, it's almost like an intermediate step to adulthood. I'm not in my parents' house, mm-hmm. but I'm not paying rent in New York City either. You know, so it's sort of like a nice middle ground.
0: Uh, I love that answer, among other reasons, because it really illustrates you as a as a teacher, uh, because it 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 you are interested in remembering the person who was a learner. At a very young and impressionable age, and wanting to tap into that so that you can connect more deeply with your students—that's a really, yeah. that was a completely surprising answer. I've got to tell you, and really <laughs> lovely, really lovely answer.
1: Thank you, Lisa. And with
0: that, I just really want to say thank you so much for sharing your your um, experience, your research, your um, your life as a teacher with us. We're really looking forward to to uh, welcoming you to the conference. It's this year. been
1: such a treat. I can't wait to see you all in person. I'm so Terrific. excited. Thanks so much.
0: Take care, to Thank you. Dr. Williams. All right. Bye. Science Wise, Questions at the Confluence of Science and Ethics is produced in conjunction with the Nobel Conference at Gustavus Adolphus College. Podcast engineer is Gustavus alumnus Will Clark. Our theme music is Thinking Blues by the inimitable blues singer Bessie Smith. And I'm your host, Lisa Heldke, Professor of Philosophy and Director of the Nobel Conference. Thanks for joining us.